0: Let's uh, give the kids another round of applause. It's great to be back with you all again this morning. That's a really hard act to follow, so (laughs) bear with me. Well, it's hard to believe, but we're in week 31 of the Core 52 series, the 52-week series. Now, after today... We will be 59.615% done with this series. I know you guys were all wondering out to the third decimal place what percentage we would be at. And so now you all know. I'm sure you wrote that down. Well, today we're going to look at the two greatest commandments and how those are demonstrated in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, Since I've been preaching at Popcorn Christian Church every other Sunday, I decided to preach a sermon series on the parables of Jesus there. So this actually coincides very well with that sermon series. Now, as I've prepared those sermons, I have really, really enjoyed studying the parables. And the more I study them, the more I realize that I've never really known the full truth or the full meaning of them like I thought I did. So as we take a deep, close look at the scriptures today... I hope and pray as a result, the Holy Spirit reveals to us what it means to love God and to love our neighbor and how Jesus set the ultimate example in obeying those two commands as the perfect Samaritan. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you especially as we celebrate Palm Sunday, dear Lord, and we think about how the parable of the Good Samaritan really demonstrates the love that that you showed to us, Jesus, that you demonstrated the greatest commandments of loving God and loving others ultimately in your death, burial and resurrection, dear Lord, and as we celebrate Palm Sunday, I ask that you keep that at the top of our minds at the forefront of our hearts for today and this week, uh, as we enter what's con- considered and called Holy Week, dear Lord, that that we would remember the sacrifice that you made and the thoughts that had to be going through your mind leading up to that Friday that day that you would die on the cross for our sins, dear Lord, a sacrifice that is something we could never do for ourselves. We could never be good enough to earn our way into heaven, but you paid the price for us, dear Lord, for that we are forever grateful. Please bless us as we dig into your word that you would take away uh, the message that you you would have us to, dear Lord, and in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so today our scripture reading is going to come from Mark chapter 12, And we're going to start with verse 28. That's Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 28. It says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Earlier in Mark chapter 11, we see that Jesus and the disciples have arrived in Jerusalem. And Jesus has this exchange with various groups of people, all who are trying to trap him trying to trip him up, trying to catch him in a false statement. It starts with the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders, and then it's some Pharisees and Herodians, and then it's the Sadducees. Of course, Jesus makes profound statement after profound statement, which they don't want to hear or learn from. They just want evidence to use against Jesus. So they're sorely disappointed that they can't trap him and angry enough that they want to kill him. But then a teacher of the law approaches Jesus. And I believe from the scripture, this man had pure intentions. It says he heard them debating and noticed Jesus had given them a good answer. So it seems that this man asks a question earnestly seeking the truth. He's not trying to trap Jesus or cause him to stumble. He's coming with a sincere heart to learn from the teacher, it doesn't appear that he has any ulterior motives with this question, and I think that in and of itself is something to take note of. Now, as teacher of the law asks Jesus the question of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jewish rabbis counted a grand total of 613 commandments in the law, and they attempted to differentiate between them as heavy or great commandments or light, or little commandments. In other words, what are the really important ones? And what are the less important ones? So this teacher of the law really wants to pick Jesus' brain and force him to give the top commandment out of 613 to choose from. Kind of reminds me of the debates that you hear in contemporary culture over who's the greatest of all time, right? You know, in basketball, who's the greatest of all time? Which I'll just tell you, it's Michael Jordan, so case closed. (laughs) But anyway, Jesus does this man one better. He doesn't just give him the greatest commandment of all time. He actually gives him the top two. Jesus replies to the man and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus is referencing scripture here from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now in this passage from Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking to the Israelites before he delivers the Ten Commandments to them. This citation from the Old Testament came to be known as the Shema, which is called that because the first word of the text is Shema, which is Hebrew for the word here. The Shema became the Jewish confession of faith, which was recited by devout Jews every morning and evening. And in fact, to this very day, its reading begins every synagogue service. Now, when I hear this commandment to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, I think it's easy for me to read right through it. You know, I say, yeah, I I know I should love God, or yeah, I know I should love God with everything that I have. And that is what it's saying. But I wanna explore in a little greater detail what it means when Jesus says to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, when it says heart and soul, It's talking about the center of our thoughts and emotions. But it's not just a feeling, it's a choice. There might be days that we feel on fire for the Lord. Things are going well, maybe we even feel the spirit moving. We really feel like we're loving God with all of our heart and with all of our soul because we have emotional feelings for him. But what about the days that are hard? When we're dealing with challenges, Or it just feels like an average day with nothing new or exciting going on, and we just don't have that feeling. Well, if there are days that we just don't feel on fire for the Lord or passionate about serving Him, the truth is that really means that our emotions and thoughts are centering around external circumstances. And I'll be honest, I have days like that. But that means I'm not loving God with my heart and my soul, because if I do, If I choose to love him with my heart and my soul, even on the hard days when I choose to love him, that's going to bring forth joy. John chapter 15 verses 9 through 11 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Jesus also says that we should love God with all of our strength. Have you taken time to think about what it means to love God with all of your strength? We're so blessed that we have so many people in this congregation who put their faith in action by using their strength to love God. Using your strength to love God could look like Cleaning up the church building, as many of you did about a week ago. Working on a service project for the men's warming shelter. Or it could be volunteering at the Hope Resource Center. And using your strength to love God doesn't have to be something that requires a lot of physical prowess. It could be baking a dessert for Bertha's mission. Or knitting prayer blankets for widows. Or even volunteering to pass communion and offering plates on Sunday morning. Anytime you're using your physical abilities to serve Him, you're loving God with your strength. Now, there's one more way here that Jesus says that we should love God that is implied in the scripture from Deuteronomy, but not actually spelled out. Jesus tells us to love God with all of our mind. So, what does it mean to love God with all of our mind? I think this is an area that I really need to improve on. Okay. If I'm being honest, I need to improve in all four of these areas in loving God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength because I fail every day. But loving God with my mind in some ways sticks out to me. Loving God with our mind, first and foremost, includes studying his word. Not just reading it, but meditating on it, praying through it, thinking about it. One thing I've noticed, and I guess I've just realized and maybe even just appreciated more and more as I've studied the scriptures is that Jesus oftentimes tells us to think. He regularly tells us to think. He wants us to use our minds. Sometimes the translation in scripture doesn't use the word think, but in one way or another, he wants us to think. In various passages, he tells us to estimate the cost. Think, consider the lilies, Think, how much time do we spend, do I spend, thinking about things that either aren't a blessing to God or maybe even are sinful? It's kind of scary to think about that, isn't it? But Jesus tells us to love God with our minds. And Philippians chapter four, verse eight, includes some things that we can think about that are loving to God. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I also think that loving God with our minds means using our minds to plan events or classes that are outreaches or discipleships for him. And some things you all do for God involve serving him at all four levels of heart, soul, mind, and strength. Just one example of many, several women here in the church held an event a few weeks ago to bring women in the community together for a night of fun and fellowship that also connected those women together with various Christian book studies. That event took a lot of planning by those women, which was loving God with their mind. It took a lot of work to set it up, which was loving God with their strength, and I know that it was an outflow of the love they have from their heart and soul at the core of who they are. Now, before we look at the second greatest commandment, can I just say, if we could fully obey the greatest commandment and truly love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? and I mean obey that commandment 100%, we would fulfill the second greatest commandment and every other commandment. Because if we truly loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the outpouring of that love would be to obey all of the commandments. But we're not perfect. We're gonna to fail to follow this command daily. But there is hope for us. Even though we can't obey the most important commandments that God ever gave us, there is still hope for us. And we're going to talk about that hope in just a bit. Now, the man that asked what the greatest commandment was, but Jesus goes one step further and gives him the second greatest commandment as well. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus here is referencing Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 which refers to part of what the Lord told Moses to tell the Israelites. It says, "Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord." Now, on a separate occasion, Jesus is asked what the greatest commandments are. And it leads Jesus to dig into what it means to love your neighbor more than he does in the passage that we read today. So I want to look at that particular conversation. On this other occasion, an expert in the law asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Given that the man who asked the question was an expert of the law, and this law meaning religious law, not civil or criminal law, and therefore had studied the scriptures, Jesus asked what his interpretation was. Now, the man answered by quoting these two commandments, which Jesus confirms by saying, do this and you will live. The man then asks Jesus who his neighbor is. He wants a definition for neighbor. He wants specifics. Now, the scripture tells us that the man in this particular story is testing Jesus. He wanted to justify himself by asking who his neighbor was. So this man, unlike the man in Mark who we read about, did not have pure intentions. Jesus answers this question by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure many of you have heard of this parable and have probably heard it or read it yourself, but I want to take a fresh look at it today. And I want to take a look at it in light of the two greatest commandments, because I think it demonstrates both commandments lived out in a practical and honestly just a beautiful way. Now this passage is found in Luke chapter 10, and is starting with verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii And gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Now, in this parable, a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's a pretty simple, straightforward statement, right? But we can glean a lot from it. First of all, it's assumed that the man going down this path was likely a Jew. And that's what Jesus' listeners would have assumed since they were in Israel. I'm not sure if anyone has traveled on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho before. I need to ask him if he's traveled down it on his recent trek over to Israel. Uh, but it actually still exists today. It's about a 17-mile trip and descends from about 2,500 feet above sea level to about 800 feet below sea level. It's a rocky, desolate road with lots of caves and places for robbers to hide and attack travelers as they pass through. In fact, there's one stretch of road that's called the Trail of Blood. So it wouldn't be surprising to Jesus' listeners that the man was attacked and robbed during the trip. Now this attack is especially brutal. They stripped the man of his clothes, they beat him, and they left him for dead. This was a life-threatening attack. If this man doesn't get help, left alone on this treacherous path, he'll die. Jesus continues and says, A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Some theologians, as I've listened to preachers preach on this and as I've studied this parable, have a theory that the priest passed by on the other side because he couldn't tell if the man was dead or alive. And if the man was dead and the priest came into contact with him, then the priest would be unclean because Jewish law considered a corpse to be unclean. Another theory is that if the priest did realize that the man was still alive, he would have known that the robbers must be nearby because the man isn't dead yet. So this must have been a recent attack. So for his own safety and his own well-being, he didn't stop to help the man. Or maybe he had an appointment that he had to make in Jericho, and so he had to keep going so he wouldn't be late. Isn't it interesting <laughs> how as we look at this parable, which isn't a story of true events, This is a story that Jesus created to prove a point. We make excuses for why a fictional character didn't help a dying man. This man was a priest who would have served in the temple, who would have been an upright religious person. And no matter what reason or excuse we make for him, he was content to let this man die on the side of the road. Well, the priest isn't the only person who came down this path. Verse 32 says, So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, Levites sometimes were priests or helped priests in the temple. And so this would have been another very well-known, well-respected figure to Jesus' audience. He too sees the man and he passes by on the other side. And then Jesus introduces the third and final character who travels down this path and sees this dying man. And this last individual is a Samaritan. You say, okay, fine, he's a Samaritan. What's the relevance of that? Well, this specific detail is very intentional, of course, on Jesus' part. Jews and Samaritans were bitter, bitter enemies of one another. In 722 BC, the Assyrians forced most of the population of Israel's northern kingdom into exile. The Samaritans were descendants of Israelites who had intermarried with pagans after the exile. So they blended Old Testament traditions with pagan beliefs that became something different than Judaism or paganism. Jews and Samaritans despised each other and had a rivalry that was built upon hundreds of years of animosity. I can only imagine the look on Jesus' audience faces, especially this expert in the law, when Jesus says that a Samaritan walks down the path. And what did the Samaritan do? It says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. The New International Version translation is the one that I usually quote. And it says here, took pity on him. But I like the translations, uh, some of the other versions, use a little bit better. The King James Version, as an example, says, He had compassion on him. The Samaritan, this is the bane of the Jews' existence, this is their mortal enemy, and vice versa, had compassion on him. And it doesn't say that he had compassion on him, and then he walked to the other side of the road, does it? No, it doesn't. It says, he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now, the wine contained alcohol, which would have had an antiseptic effect on the man's wounds. The oil helped to soothe the wounds and ease the pain. Then he put the man on his own donkey. Well, what's the implication of that? The Samaritan walked the rest of the way. Again, this is a long, windy road. This wasn't a leisurely hike through the woods. And then he brought the man to the inn to take care of him. And it says there, the next day, which means he spent the night watching over the man taking care of him. Then he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper, and asked him to look after the man. Now we know from other studies and from ancient culture that two denarii would be the equivalent of about two days wages. I've read various estimations as to how long that would pay for someone to stay in an inn. Some have said as long as two months. And not only does the Samaritan give the innkeeper two denarii, He tells him he'll reimburse him for any extra expense when he returns to the inn. I've often wondered why Jesus included this detail in the parable, that the Samaritan left the man there. I think we have to be careful that we don't assume anything that isn't there, that we don't imply any meaning that Jesus doesn't intend. So please take my theory here with a grain of salt. The Samaritan gave the innkeeper permission to spend whatever was necessary to take care of the man and would pay him back. I think Jesus was illustrating that the Samaritan was willing to sacrifice any amount of money to ensure that this man was taken care of. And I think the reason that he left wasn't to illustrate that he wasn't going to take care of the man himself, but that he would come back to make sure that the man had recovered. He didn't just drop him off and tell him, hope you get feeling better, have a good life. No, he was coming back. He was seeing this through. Jesus ends his parable with another question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to a man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Notice he couldn't even utter the word Samaritan. The best he could choke out was the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now this is a powerful, and if you're like me, convicting story of what it means to be a neighbor to someone. But here's the reality. None of us will ever live up to the gold standard that is the Good Samaritan. We might help someone who's dying if we're ever in that situation, hopefully we're not. But to show that amount of care and compassion and generosity and selflessness and love to someone who's our mortal enemy, I think we're probably gonna fall short. If the expert in the law can keep these two commands, if he can truly fulfill them, if he can keep them perfectly, he'll inherit eternal life. That's what Jesus told him, right? But guess what? He can't. No one can. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. One of the effects of the law is that it holds up a mirror and it exposes our sin. So where does our hope come from if we fail at the two greatest commands that God has ever given us? Our hope comes from Jesus, the only true Good Samaritan who has ever lived. If you think about the story of the Good Samaritan a different way, it's really the story of our salvation. While we were on the side of the road, Dead to sin. Jesus saw us. He had compassion on us. And while we were still sinners, He paid the ultimate price to save our lives. It didn't cost Him two denarii, it cost Him His life. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I gave you the setting for the parable and for our context in Scripture today. But I want to zoom out just a little bit further on this time in Jesus' life to give you a little more context. If you were to go back one chapter earlier than the chapter we started with, if you go back to Mark chapter 11, it's going to set the stage for the events leading up to Jesus telling us what the two greatest commandments are. Now, I don't know if Sean or John or Tim planned this uh, for this particular Core 52 study to fall on today's date, Palm Sunday, of course. But I was, as I was reading the passages before and after the Core 52 Scripture in Mark, I got goosebumps because this story is smack dab in the middle of Palm Sunday and Jesus' crucifixion. I want to read the first 10 verses of Mark chapter 11 to you as we celebrate Palm Sunday today. As they, meaning Jesus and the disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, You will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt tied outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the man who was mugged was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Bethany, where Jesus and his disciples arrive, is the last stop on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. In this recording in Mark, Jesus tells two of his disciples to go ahead of him to find a colt which has never been ridden. Now this is important because this fulfills the prophecy from Zechariah 99 that says the king would come on a colt. They bring the colt to Jesus, and they throw their cloaks over it, which pays homage to Jesus being royalty. And then the people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. That's where the name Palm Sunday comes from, because of the palm branches that were laid on the road as Jesus entered Jerusalem. Now, as Jesus is being celebrated as king, He knows that the cross is only a few days away. The people who are shouting Hosanna, which means Lord save us today, will be shouting crucify him, crucify him in a week. And as he hangs on the cross dying, as some of those same people jeer at him, watch him die, he'll say, Father forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you want to know what it looks like to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself? Nothing in the history of mankind has ever or will ever demonstrate obedience to those two commandments as Jesus' life did or as his death did. He went to the cross to die as an act of obedience and love to God and an act of grace and love for all of us. Norvel Geldenhaus, in his book, Commentary on the Gospel of Luke, puts it this way, The irrevocable word of God still remains valid, that he who observes the law perfectly will live. He who always loves God and his fellow man will inherit eternal life. But alas, no man has ever been able to observe this law perfectly, nor can anyone do so. And because no imperfect observance of the law, however excellent it might be, can be accepted, and because the judgment of God that the soul that sins, even if only on a single occasion, shall die is just as irrevocable, we know that no man can ever inherit eternal life on the grounds of his own merit. But God be praised that Christ Jesus, as man, lived a life of complete love. Towards God and men, and as the entirely innocent one endured death for us on the cross, forsaken by God, so that by faith we are absolved from the death we deserve and inherit eternal life. This, however, does not remove the obligation to obey Jesus' words, go and do thou likewise. But the difference is as follows: The law has said. Do this and thou shalt live. While Christ says, I have given you eternal life through grace, and this new life in you will enable you to have real love towards God in your fellow men and carry it out in practice. So go forth and live a life of true love to God and to your fellow men through the power I give you. The good news as we celebrate a designated holiday next Sunday but we really celebrate every Sunday, is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Death was defeated once and for all for those who believe in him. Acts chapter two, verse 24 says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. As we close, if you haven't given your life to Jesus, That is the first place to start. The price of your salvation has already been paid, but you have to receive the gift. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, if the man lying on the side of the road dying had said, no, leave me here, I'll be fine, I don't need your help, what would have happened? Left to his own devices, he would have died. His only hope of survival was to accept the free act of grace being offered to him. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're lying on the side of the road, dying to sin, and he's not going to force salvation upon you. It's a free act of grace, but you have to accept it. Today is the day to do so. Because like the Samaritan in the story who promised to come back for the man, Jesus promised he'll come back one day. And for those who have given their life to him, they're in, they'll inherit eternal life. John 14, two through three says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go there and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. As we come to our time of communion, which is the time to reflect on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, let's love God with all of our heart soul, mind, and strength, as we think about the sacrifice that God made, that Jesus made, as we participate in this meal.